All right, Psalm 34. We're in a series called Summer of Psalms. And uh, this is something we've been doing for a while as a church, just taking the summers to walk through uh, a psalm at a time. And uh, we did Psalm 119 last summer. The whole summer we just did that one. So that one we finished up. But we're just doing a kind of a grab bag this this summer. Um, and it's taken us kind of all over the book. And we're, we're in 34 today. And this one is a, uh, a really great psalm. I, it's probably one that if, if you have been in the Word, reading the Word much in your life, you've probably encountered it. And there are some, some single verses within this psalm that are just uh, precious truths. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to walking us through it today. But really fundamentally, this psalm is an invitation to us from King David, who wrote this psalm, to us to praise the Lord and to trust Him. Um, and the psalm is interesting because it actually is one of only 14 psalms in the whole book. There's 150 psalms in this book. And out of all 150, there's only 14 that give us a historical background to why the psalm was written or what inspired it uh, or what was the thing that led David or someone else to write these words. And this one is interesting. Uh, let, me, let me read it. It's in... It's in the text. This isn't something that a translator somewhere added in. This is what David wrote as, a, as kind of an introduction to the psalm. And it says of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. All right, so what's that? Um, well, that's an interesting story. It's actually a really weird story. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, it, it's found in 1 Samuel 21. You don't need to turn there. I'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time in this. Uh, but I, want to, I just want to give you the overview. And you certainly feel free to read 1 Samuel 20 and 21 and 22. And just can, you, know, you can read the whole context of this event. But basically what happens is uh, David is anointed king by Samuel earlier in the book. But King Saul is still king. And God basically promises David and his family that he will be king. And Saul knows he's a lame duck uh, king, right? He doesn't have any real authority anymore. He, he knows it's all done. done but um, he doesn't step aside. And uh, he just becomes a crazy person, um, a murderous, crazy person who's trying to kill David. So um, Saul is threatening to murder David and his family. David ends up uh, being tipped off that this is going to happen, and so he, he flees. He runs away, and he runs um, basically to wherever he can go to get away, and he ends up uh, stopping over at a, uh, a priest, uh, one of the priests who feeds him. Uh, actually, there's a famous story in the Old Testament of David being given the, the bread of the presence, which was only for the priest to eat, but the priest fed David and his men with it because uh, they were starving and there was no other food to be given. And so um, this priest breaks the law to keep David alive. And actually Jesus talks about that while the Pharisees are yelling at his disciples about breaking some of their rules too. Uh, but that's another part of the story. That's another day. But uh, he eats... And then um, he asked the priest, do you have a sword? I had to leave so quickly, I didn't bring any weapons. 
And the only sword that the priest had with him, which is kind of coincidental in some way, was uh, Goliath's sword, which David had taken from the giant, killed the giant with his own sword after knocking him down with the rock, right? And um, so this priest happens to have Goliath's sword just like hanging out in his, in his house or whatever um, and gives it to, to David. So then David takes the sword and then he runs to a city to, to flee into safety. And he runs to a city of not Israel, but the Philistines, uh, which are the enemies of Israel. And he runs into the city of Gath, which is, if you understand that whole thing, it's like, this is super awkward because this is Goliath's hometown. So he runs with Goliath's sword into Goliath's home city, who's, he, Goliath's been dead a long time by now, but he's, he's there in this city. And he's recognized because David was an extremely famous person. He was a great warrior. He killed lots and lots of people. And in those days, that's just what made you popular, I guess. Not cool, don't do that. But... Um, uh, <laughs> but that's what, he was a soldier. So he got famous for that. And he's recognized by the people in Gath and he's brought uh, into the presence of the king who is referred to in the Psalm as Abimelech. Uh, in, the, in, Psalm, in 1 Samuel, he's, his name is actually King Achish. Um, king Achish was probably more like a governor or a mayor, um, not so much a king. He was probably the king of this city of Gath. Um, but why is he called Abimelech in the psalm and Achish in the, in the historical book? Well, Abimelech is probably a title, kind of like governor or mayor or president. It's not the person's proper name, it's their title. That's probably what, a, what Abimelech means. Um, the, that translates out as my, my father is king. And so that's more than likely what's happening is that David's using his title in the psalm and then his name was actually Achish. Well, anyways, how does David get out of this situation? He uh, is in prison, waiting to be seen by the king, and he starts acting like a lunatic. He starts drooling all over himself. That's why I said it's a weird story. Starts drooling all over himself, starts making weird noises, scratching at the, at the door, acting like a crazy person. And the, the soldiers bring him to King Achish, who sees this guy who seemingly is insane and says, don't I have enough insane people in my life? That's literally what he says. Don't I have enough insane people? Like, why are you bringing this insane person to me? Like, come on. Probably feels like some of your family reunions. You know, you, new boyfriend comes along and it's like, don't we have enough insane people already? You need to bring another, right? That's what the King Achish says. And, and then he's like, get out of here. Just get out of here. So he lets David go. And David runs and finds safety in a cave, summons his family. His family was also being hunted down, so they all come as well. All right, so that's, <laughs> that's kind of an interesting story. Um, but that's the thing that's, that inspires David to write this psalm, that God would deliver him and protect him and give him safety from his enemies, not just Saul, who was also chasing him down and killing him, but running into literally enemy territory and not being killed, not being brought to justice in their minds for having killed Goliath. He's able to escape. He's able to get out and, and continue to live. And so that's why he says, this is the Psalm of David. When he changed his behavior, which is a very polite way of saying, acted like a lunatic, right? And then Abimelech drove him away and he went away. 
So that's where we're at. And the psalm itself uh, basically is just a reflection on God's provision and goodness and his grace. So uh, let's look at it. Um, We're going to look at this in kind of two sections. There's the psalm is divided up into two general categories. The first half, which is one through uh, 10, is uh, basically a song. It's a, it's a hymn of sorts. And it's, it's just there to help us um, rejoice with David in God's deliverance. And then the second half, from verse 11 through 22, is more or less a sermon. It's, it's David teaching us what he learned about God's character through the experiences that he had. And so that's the, that's the basic structure of the psalm. And so let's look at it together. Uh, verse 1 through 10 is the, the song, and then verse 11 through 22 is the sermon. But let's look at the song first. Um, there's four stanzas in each of these sections. So verse 1 to 3 is the first stanza. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. This is an invitation. It's an invitation for us to praise the Lord with David, to see the same God that cared for David all those years ago is still the same God who cares for us. And the point, the theme of this stanza is this, that God gets the glory for what he has done. God gets the glory, right? He starts with, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. And so there's this this call that we see repeated throughout the scriptures, particularly in uh, Philippians, where, where the Apostle Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, that there is this call for our hearts as followers of, of the Lord to say, God deserves the praise at all times. All times means at bad times too. And I think as David gets on the other side of this really scary, difficult season with fleeing from Saul, and getting into safety, I think he's recognizing as he reflects back on this. Now, we don't know when in his life he wrote this. He may have reflected on this in the cave while he was waiting for his family to get there that quickly, perhaps after this event, or he may have written this many years later. We just don't know. Um, But either way, at some point in time, he's reflecting back on God's deliverance and protection of him from Abimelech, from King Achish, and ultimately also from Saul, um, but, but the primary issue in, in front of him is that he was able to escape from the city of Gath and he's blessing the Lord. He's praising the Lord. He resolves in his heart that God deserves the glory. He's worthy of it. But, but it's important to know that all times means in suffering too, not just when things are good, not just when things are easy. We should praise the Lord, especially when we're suffering. Because God is still good and he's still who he says he is. Then in verse 3 it says to magnify the Lord with David, to exalt his name together. What does it mean to magnify the Lord? 
Well, that word magnify, I think what probably comes to mind when you hear that word magnify is like an instrument, like a, a microscope or something, right? A microscope takes something very, very small and blows it up, makes it bigger for us to observe. But that's not the right way to understand magnifying the Lord. It's not like he's this tiny insignificant thing in our minds and we have to make him bigger. No, I think magnifying the Lord is, is more like uh, using a telescope. A telescope also magnifies, but what it does is it makes objects that are massive but very far away appear more like they really are. And that's how magnifying the Lord in our hearts should work. It's not that God is small and insignificant. No, he's, he's massive and, and glorious, but we are so sinful and broken that we are in some ways removed from that glory. And so to magnify the Lord is to get our hearts aligned to his so that we see him for more of who he really is. It, it's it's the, these instruments like telescopes or binoc- binoculars when you're up in the, the nosebleeds at a, at a stadium, right? And you can't afford anything better than way up in the, in the seats. And you got these binoculars and you're kind of making these people who are playing the game larger so you can see them, right? They're, they're not this big in real life. <laughs> they're bigger than you in real life, but they look very small. And so you're using this. This is what David's calling us to, to see God for who he is and to make him, uh, not make him bigger than he is, but to see our hearts aligned to who he is. And so we see this call to give God the glory in all these things, and particularly in hard things. Second stanza, verse four to seven, here's what it says. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. We see that God gets the glory. We also see that God does the saving David does not take credit for his rescue. He probably, in his mind, came up with the idea to act like a lunatic and to do this whole thing to try to get out of this sticky situation. But David doesn't say, man, look at how smart I was for getting out of that. He doesn't take credit for the rescue. He gives God the credit for the rescue. He, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. And so, like, yes, it's, this is not to say that we don't participate with the Lord in certain aspects of, of our lives. Of course we, we do. But we, we need to bring our hearts into the right place, which is not to take the credit, but to give the credit. Because ultimately, if we are ever saved at all from obviously from sin right in Jesus we don't take any credit for that at all all we do is fling ourselves onto Jesus and say you you do the saving right but in even in life life struggles and life difficulties and and troubles that we may find ourselves in beyond that we still don't get to take the credit for saving ourselves out of those things we might think well I was smart enough to figure it out but you were only smart enough to figure it out in as far as God gave you the ability 
And so David is acknowledging this thing, that all he did was cry out as a poor man to the Lord. He had nothing else. He just cried to the Lord, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So we see that God does the saving, that God gets the glory. Um, One more. Here's verse 8 through 10 on this first half. He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So we see God get the glory. We see God does the saving. And now we see that God is who provides. His goodness provides. Oh, taste and see, that is to experience for ourselves God's goodness. That's what we're called to do, to experience the goodness of God, which we talked about this last week, that the goodness of God comes through in, in and through provision and protection and care and all those things, right? Here we're seeing that same theme, that the goodness of God though, to, those, to those who take refuge in him lack no good thing. See, here's the, here's the reality. If we, if we see God's goodness as, as the very heart of who he is, then, then anything we get from God is going to be good. It may not feel good in the moment, but anything that God brings to us, does for us, is good. And, and that, living in that, experiencing that, is what we're called to. We're called to taste and see it. The only way we can get there is by faith, by trusting him and awaiting for him to work in our lives. But because we know God is good, and because he is good, we know he'll provide for what we need. David uses this example of the young lions who suffer want and hunger. Even the lions don't always have all the food that they desire or need, but the Lord cares for us and we lack no good thing. Ultimately, the good thing that we're talking about is not in material blessing, although it can, can include that. The true good thing that we should be looking at is our salvation, our eternal life, that nothing through Jesus can be taken away from us. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And those who seek the Lord will never lack those things. So here's the call to bless the Lord, to seek the Lord, to taste and see that he is good. This is the song at the first half of the psalm that we're looking at. But as we get into the second half, we're, we're transitioning. We're actually seeing a, a sermon come out where, where David is going to teach us something. This is how it starts in verse 11. It says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So first we're called to rejoice with David. Now we're called to learn from him, from what he has experienced. And I don't think that this is... Uh, disconnected from the first half. I think the first half, the the pinnacle of the first half of this psalm is taste and see that the Lord is good. 
And now David is basically going to go, yeah, let me show you. Let me take you there. Let me show you how the Lord is good. And he's going to walk us through these things. Verse 12 says, What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, we're going we're gonna to get there uh, because these verses that I just read, at least, and, and the, the next couple as well, are quoted in the New Testament by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. And I think that we, we've got to go there because whenever a psalm is quoted in the New Testament, that tells us how we should understand these words. They're gonna, Peter, Peter's going to help us understand these words. Um, so we'll come back to that. But let's, let's look at essentially the three points of David's sermon here. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. David wants us to see and taste that God is good. How is God good? Well, God sees us in our suffering. God sees us when we are at the, the worst place in life. God looks at us. His face is towards us. He is not turned away from us. He is not blind to us. He's not shutting his eyes on you. He sees you and he, he's going to do more than that, right? But the first thing David draws out of here is God sees us and he sees us always, but particularly the, these words are of comfort when we are suffering, right? That's the context of the psalm. David is running for his life and escapes by the skin of his neck from Gath and that is by definition suffering, right? To have a murderous dictator trying to kill you is suffering. You probably don't have that problem. Uh, I don't either. Uh, and, and that's good, right? But that's what David was up against. He had Saul trying to kill him. He's now in front of this guy in, in Gath who's trying, potentially trying to kill him. And God saves him from that suffering. But he's acknowledging here that God saw him, sees him actively. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Secondly, look at verse 17. It says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears him and delivers them out of all their troubles. God sees us in our suffering and also God hears our cries in suffering. God is not blind to you and he's not deaf to, towards you. I know it feels like that at times. It can feel like God doesn't care about me. He doesn't see my pain. He doesn't hear me. He's not answering my prayers. That is a real thing that we can struggle with. But that's why we need our Bibles. Because the Bible can correct our emotions. Heart, the heart of a human being is very deceptive. The Bible tells us that. And we can deceive ourselves and sit in a place of wallowing in, in our own misery and we can feel that God does not love us or care for us or hear us or see us. But it's not true. 
That's why the Bible is so vital because the Bible tells us how to actually see the situation. You may feel that way right now. I don't know where you're all coming, coming in from, what your week has been like. I know where some of you are from conversations with you, but I know there's a lot of hurt and suffering in this church. Tons of it. And it can feel so, so hard because it feels like the Lord doesn't hear our cries. He's not coming through. He's not answering our prayers. He is. He is hearing. He is seeing. But even more than that, look at verse 18. Here's Paul. Here's uh, David's third point. It says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. God sees you, which may not in itself be a lot of comfort because, you know, you can see a lot of things that you don't have any way to help with. The Lord hears you, and that, again, may not be a lot of comfort because, again, you can hear a lot of things and maybe don't know how to help or don't know what to do. But that's why David drills into this, that it's not that he just sees. It's not that he just hears. He does, and that's good. But if this third piece is not there, there's, a, there's a, maybe perhaps a potential for us to go, well, okay, but he's just out there in the distance. No, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. I don't know what you've come in here with. I don't know what brokenheartedness you experience. I don't know how crushed you feel. But this is the good news. That if you are broken, if you are crushed, if you feel like you are suffocating under the weight of your struggles, God is not just seeing you and hearing you. He is, but he's also near to you. How is he near us? Well, Spurgeon Charles Spurgeon helps us here. He says that, that the Lord is near in friendship to accept and console us. He says, broken hearts think that God is far away when he is really most near to them. His eyes are blind, we think, so that they do not see. But he is with us and in us, but we don't know it. Brokenhearted people run here and there seeking peace in their own works or in experiences or in their proposals and resolutions, but the Lord is near to them and a simple act of faith will reveal him. That is incredibly helpful truth for us. That doesn't immediately solve all of your struggles and pains It doesn't mean you're going to just walk out of here and go, well, I have no problems anymore. But what it does mean is that you are never alone as you walk through those things. God is near to you and he experiences what you experience. And that's where the psalm goes in the last four verses. It actually takes us to Jesus. It says in verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, 
and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is pointing us to the future from David's perspective, but the past work from our perspective of Jesus Christ. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Well, who is the righteous? We can claim righteousness only insofar as we are in Jesus. Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul tells us that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on the cross so that in him, in him, as we stand in him by faith, we become the righteousness of God. We are the righteous ones, but we are not the ultimate righteous one. And so when David writes of the righteous, if we are in Jesus, we can apply those words to our lives. But when it says many are the afflictions of the righteous, he's talking about Jesus ultimately. He doesn't know him by name. He didn't live to see the day. But through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, that's where he's pointing us to. Think about the afflictions of Jesus. He was afflicted in every way. He was afflicted through material affliction, right? He was born into poverty. He lived his whole life in poverty. He didn't have a home to, to call his own. He, he depended on the generosity of others to get him through his ministry. From the moment he was born, his, his life was at risk and his family had to flee into Egypt for a couple of years probably until Herod died and the threat was gone. Then, then Jesus gets into the world and what happens? He's, he's rejected. His own brothers think he's a crazy person. He had relational suffering. He had all of it. But then, of course, at the pinnacle of his suffering is the cross of Christ. Where there he experiences the physical pain, the spiritual pain, and the emotional pain of the cross, taking our sins upon himself. Jesus experienced many afflictions, though he was absolutely righteous. But why do I say that these words are about Jesus, well, it's because of verse 20 where David writes, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And the gospel of John tells us that these words are about Jesus on the cross, not having his bones broken. While the thieves on either side of him had their legs broken so that they would die quicker, Jesus had already passed away. And so the soldier came to Jesus and was like, well, he's already dead. We don't have to break his legs. But John tells us that that was to fulfill these words. And so here we see the, the afflictions of the righteous on Jesus, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. How did he deliver Jesus out of all his afflictions? Because he died on a cross. Well, he delivers him out of all his afflictions by raising him on the third day, by bringing him back to life to, to bring us our salvation, so that the words of verse 22 can be applied to us, that the Lord redeems the life of his servants. He does that through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, so that none who take refuge in him find their safety in him, find their security in him, find their place of comfort in him will ever be condemned. None who take refuge in him will be condemned. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus took our condemnation upon himself. As he suffered and died, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of our brokenness was placed on him and he experienced the afflictions as a truly righteous one who deserved no afflictions. He received them all, the Bible tells us, with joy. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That is Jesus. That's what he's done for us. That is why we can say and rightly apply, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's proven in Jesus. So that's true. And if you don't hear anything else today, you need to hear that. Jesus Christ opens his arms to you to take away all your sin, to set you free, to give you life. But how do these words then help us in the tangible day-to-day life with, within the church? That's actually the, where the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 goes as he uses this psalm, a portion of this psalm, to speak to the people he's writing to. And it's really interesting what he does here. He's basically taking uh, the words that we use here, our our kind of catchphrase or whatever you want to call it is um, gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. And when I say that, what I mean is that the things we know are true about God from, from the scriptures, that's gospel doctrine, the things that God has shown us about himself, leads to gospel culture. What, what is meant by that is that, the, that our community, our relationships within the church should reflect back to who God is. And that's really interesting. As I study this, I didn't know, this might feel like I'm shoehorning something in here, but it's I just don't know any other way to do it. I've got to deal with it because Paul, Peter rather, quotes the, the, this psalm and this is how he applies it. So look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called to what? Bless. That's what we were called to. That you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, this is the quotation from the psalm, for whoever desires to see life And good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So this is the quotation. He he pulls out these verses from Psalm 34. But, But why does he do that? He does this because... Gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. And what David is doing in this psalm is saying, here's who God is. He is good. 
He hears you. He's near to you. He sees you. He does all these things for you. That's who God is for you. And so this is how we ought to be for each other. Gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. So when Paul said, Peter, I keep saying Paul, because, you know, that's how we, we spend a lot of time in Paul. Peter, when he says this, says, finally, all of you have unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, humble minds. Is this just a checklist of things that we have to have? No, these things are rooted in who God is. He is by his very nature a triune God. He is one in three persons. God exhibits, embodies somehow unity in a way that we can't fully wrap our heads around. But because he's a unified God, we are to be unified. Jesus is the most sympathetic Savior you will ever find. The most loving the most tender-hearted, and the most humble. All of these things find their, their embodiment in Jesus. And so they should find their place in the church. The church should be a place where everyone can come and feel this culture, the kind of culture that, that Peter is drawing out of this, this culture of Unity and sympathy and love and tenderness and humility. That's what we want to be. Because Jesus is all those things for us. We want to see this grow more and more. We're not there perfectly. But we we need to continue to see the gospel till up the soil of our hearts to make us more like this towards each other. I honestly think that one of the markers of a healthy church as you walk into a place is that you see people in it who don't fit everywhere else. And if you are here and you think, you know, I don't think we have anybody like that. Well, that's you then. (laughs) Welcome. You're loved. You know how it is. You have a friend group and you're like, There's, we don't have any weird friends. You're the weird friend. Like, that's just how it works. That's how it always works. But a healthy church, a gospel-centered church, a church that really embodies gospel culture is a church that sees people coming in who are uncomfortable, who, who don't feel like they belong anywhere else, who may not have been cared for anywhere else, and they're welcomed in. So, so here's, here's the thing. Coming back to that beginning story about David standing before Abimelech, Abimelech says to David, don't I have enough crazy people already? Here's the truth. Jesus Christ will never say that to you. He says, come on. <laughs> come on in. That's the whole point of Jesus' parable about the wedding feast. Have you ever heard that story where Jesus is telling a parable about what the kingdom of God is like and this guy throws a huge party and all of his friends bail on him? And so he says, well, I've already bought all the food, so go out there and just find anybody. And the, and the servants go out and they find these people who are kind of on the outskirts 
And they bring him in and the, the servants come back to the master and say, uh, uh, there's still room at the party. What should we do? And he says, go out as far as you can and bring everybody in. That's the heart of Christ. That's the heart of Christ. He is near to us. He is near to brokenhearted people. He is near to people who are crushed. And the church should be near to those people too. And the church is you and me, not this building, not this organization. We should embody tenderness and love and sympathy because Jesus does. Let's, let's move in that direction. It'll take a lifetime to get there, but let's keep moving in that direction. That's the hope. Let me pray for us and then we'll close. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you have never said to any of us, I don't want you. And you will never say to any person who comes to you, you're too crazy. You'll never say, you'll never say that to us. And we praise you for that. We bless you for that. And we pray that we would actually see that heart, your heart, grow towards us and in us. And we pray, God, that this place would become more and more a gospel culture. We ask now for our hearts as we turn our attention to responding through singing and remembering the Lord's table and what you've done for us at the cross. I pray that you would speak to us and, and just embolden us, Lord, for your, for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.